This podcast is brought to you by A Copy Match. A Copy Match is a boutique matchmaking service that helps exceptional singles find meaningful connections and relationships. To learn more about our matchmaking services, online dating makeovers and takeovers, or to enroll in an upcoming group coaching intensive, go to agopymatch.com. Welcome to Ask a Matchmaker. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria. For over a decade, I've combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, each week, I bring a guest on to talk about dating and relationships while answering your questions. You can ask a question by visiting askamatchmaker.com. This week's guest is Monica Berg. Monica is a spiritual thought leader and author of two books, Fear is Not an Option, and Rethink Love. And she's the host of Spiritually Hungry Podcast, so check that out. She has a fresh voice that channels her many years of Kabbalistic study along with personal life experiences to show individuals how to create a life that not only feels like it's working, but more importantly, a life in which they are living and loving as a powerful and fulfilled person they've always wanted to be. Monica, welcome to Ask a Matchmaker. Thank you for having me. It's good to be with you today. Awesome. Reading your bio, I have to be honest, I don't know that much about Kabbalah. Yeah, I don't think Can you're alone. Can you tell me that. more about that? <laughs> yes, it's an ancient wisdom that teaches the difference between the complexities of the material world and the non-material world. So the 1% reality versus the 99. The 1% is what we all live in and are very familiar with. It's how we see the world really through our five senses touch, smell, feeling, we take a lot of that very seriously, right? And that kind of living is usually very rooted and tapped into our ego's desires. And then there's the 99% realm, which is everything that's unseen. It's what allows you and I to speak today in different parts of the world, right? There's frequencies and raves of um, energy going around that allows things to happen. We take it for granted. We don't really understand how certain things work, but we rely on them. So the 99% is really very much like that. It's connected to our compassion, our empathy, our vulnerability, our kindness, that aspect of our truest self, our soul self. So Kabbalah is really a wisdom where it allows a person to become more rooted in that reality, where most of our actions reflect that part of our being. And from that space, we're able to really transform and grow into our ultimate potential, which is really why we are in this world. Wow. Okay. That is so much better than Madonna ever explained it. On <laughs> I just want to say, like, I feel like it's, it's a philosophy. I mean, I guess most, most religious things are, I suppose. Like, it, would you consider Kabbalah more of a religion or? I wouldn't because it doesn't really matter what religion you are. You could apply it to anything you believe in. The beauty of Kabbalah is that it's really a verb. It's all about action. It's about leaving this world different than how you came into it. And it provides the wisdom and the tools to be able to practice that um, in day to day things that come up really so that with your experience in life, it's really life is happening through you and not to you, that you derive purpose and meaning from every single thing, even the things that you see at first as being the most challenging things. For me, that's been the most right. profound part of this wisdom. It's allowed me to really become a person who um, never feels like a victim, who never feels shame or blame, and really looks at everything as an opportunity for growth and transformation. And that's very liberating. I love that. I feel like I apply that too. I didn't realize that there was um, a noun for it 
or a verb for it, I suppose. But I, I totally understand what you're saying. I mean, one of the things that I, I'm constantly telling um, people is that every person's an opportunity. You know, if you feel like you're not meeting any people in real life, one of the biggest complaints that I've been hearing recently is this actually happened to me yesterday. So shout out to one of my listeners, Andrea, we were talking, she was telling me that, you know, she wants to meet people in real life, but she doesn't have any girlfriends right now to meet. And I said, okay, well then that means you need to make girlfriends because you might meet someone through those new girlfriends because every person's an opportunity. And, you know, for anyone listening, the suggestions that I gave her was like, get on meetup.com and, and start doing fun things. If you see a kayaking club, if you see a hiking club, like just, just go, just do things that make you extend your network. And in that network, there's an opportunity from Kabbalah. Did you, first of all, were you raised in, in this philosophy or did you discover it as an adult? Somewhere in the middle. I discovered it when I was 17. Okay. So was not raised in it. I lived, you know, a pretty normal, normal secular life. And my parents at the time were kind of concerned that I was uh, going down a rocky path. And so they stumbled up across this wisdom and introduced me to it. And, uh, and it was life-changing in the sense that it was the first time. And I started asking these questions really early in my life. You know, why are we here you know, if I look around and so many people, even adults, especially adults are trying to figure it out and they're unhappy and miserable and they're all running after the same thing. And in this rat race, this cannot be the point of living. And by the way, I was already tired at 17. I went to Beverly Hills High School. I felt like I had seen a lot of things that like the illusion was already shattered for me, you know, cannot Wait, I'm be sorry, go back. You went to Beverly Hills high school. I did. <laughs> uh, we have to talk about that for a minute. Like, do you guys, do you ever talk about 90210 while you're there or no, it's, I mean the, um, when you do morning announcements, is it the 90210 theme song? It is very much, uh, you know, everybody has a very, not everybody, but most, you know, if you look at the parking lot there and these are all new drivers, right? right. 16 year olds, it's like BMWs, Mercedes, uh, Range Rovers. I mean, you know, it, and that, yeah, it's very easy to get distracted. Um, also the material world, of course, Yeah, you know, I can see why at 17 that you would embrace this by, if, by having so much exposure to the material world. I was just exhausted. I'm like, this just cannot be the purpose of living. So I, I was just really, it was the first time I found answers to life's questions. The ones that were really bothering me and making me feel sad, quite honestly. So for when I found it, I was like, okay, now I have purpose and meaning. And it really shaped how I navigated the rest of my life. And, you know, you, you wrote two books, fear is not an option and rethink love. Um, I'd love to, to talk about, I mean, I see that they're both published under under Kabbalah, right? Kabbalah publishing, correct. Kabbalah publishing. So, you know, was in, in both books, are you using the philosophy to make sense of the tenants you're putting forward? Well, I do say that in, um, in Fierce on an Option, it is semi-autobiographical. So the third part of the book has a lot of tools in it. And many of them are, not all of them, but many of them are uh, rooted in Kabbalistic tools. So, um, and rethink love, I state very clearly at the beginning, I don't, it doesn't have to be Kabbalah that you study, but I do believe for a relationship to really thrive and that the love to grow each year because it's meant to, um, and most people don't, right? They kind of plateau and then it declines on some level. Um, but to really have that relationship where you're loving each other and appreciating each other more and more each year, there needs to be some kind of spirituality in the relationship. Because if not, there are always three people, it's two adults, hopefully, and the ego, 
or so maybe that's four because each person has an ego. And when that's involved and you don't have something spiritual, that's going to say, wait a second, you can't take that part so seriously. Let's challenge the ego and really be vulnerable to one another. Then it's so easy you know, love will never be enough to actually save the relationship. I've seen so many people break up who really do love each other. They just can't live together anymore. You know, the reason why we brought you on this week is because I actually recently read and heard some of the things that you were talking about when it comes to fighting uh, and fighting fairly. And I wanted to pivot towards that now. So, you know, because you, you know, you just mentioned rethink love and, and how we love and how to, you know, how to grow love, but in any relationship, there's going to be fights. So let me just take a step back for a second. So, you know, you're raised in Beverly Hills. Are, are you currently married? Yeah, been married to one person, same for uh, 24 years. So 24 years, I mean, I feel like we should be asking you for your secrets about your relationship as well. That's such a long time. It's um, all in the book, honestly. I write a lot about my relationship as well because I think that what is unique about us is that we have, experienced many different things, mm -hmm. challenges, growth. We have four children um, together, right? So it's not right. like we learned and then we moved on and we practiced with somebody else. And that it was just like, we went through it together and our love is stronger now than it was uh, 24 years ago, or even, you know, 20 years ago, or at any stage, we, the formula works. Well, what's the, so what's the formula? Well, it's a mixture of things. I would say the top three that are important is that you give your relationship time and energy. It's not something that you put off to the side for when you're less busy, right? Because what happens is people put a lot of effort in finding the one, a lot, as I'm sure you know, and then they find that person and then it's like, all right, so now I'm going to focus on career. And then, all right, I'm going to focus on having our first child and I'm going to, right. you know, to get our home. And then it's like, wait, what happened to the relationship? That's really when you need to start focusing on it. And people often start to feel unhappy around year five, six, for sure, year seven, that's usually when they seek counsel. And at that point, it's almost too late because usually there's so much water under the bridge and they built up so much resentment that there's really a lot of work to do. Of course, it can be fixed, but it's so much harder. So I would say the first is to really make sure that you nurture your relationship and give it time and energy. The second is to cultivate appreciation. It's one of the first things that people lose once they're married or, or living together and, and they're really committed. Um, it's so easy. Again, you work so hard to find that. And then now it's like, okay, you, you know, they're going to be home when I get there, or they're going to cook dinner, or you just take things for granted. It's human nature. And the third, which I think that people also kind of forget is to make sure that there's laughter and levity in the relationship. It needs to be fun because it is work. It's hard work, but that doesn't mean it has to be painful work. So, you know, I think that what happens often in marriages is that it becomes so routine and you become so mired in the details of living and day to day, you know, that kind of robotic existence that uh, you save fun for your coworkers, for your girlfriends, for your buddies, and you don't really have fun in the marriage anymore. So I think those are the three things. Now, of course, like you mentioned fighting, um, I really believe that fighting is very healthy in a relationship and I believe it's very necessary. I call it spiritual sparring, um, but there is a trick there as well, which is that you need to have a fighting style that you both agree on that works for both of you, because that's not how you come into it, which again, takes thought, time and energy. It's not something you can just kind of like stumble through. Okay. What is a fighting style? I do want to say one thing. You said that fight, most everybody fights. There are some couples, by the way, who don't fight. And I worry most about those because if you are passionate, 
about something. Anytime someone says to me, um, oh, my parents never fought. I was like, okay, hold up. Let's, let's talk more about that. Or if someone tells me, oh, my boyfriend, I never fight. And I go, that's just, cause even my husband and I, we don't, we don't like fight every week or every month, but we, we got, we've got our, we do our bouts a few times a year. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to bicker all the time, but there are things that you will feel passionate about and your husband will feel passionate about. And you need to talk about those things right. or argue about them, right? So I remember I saw that so clearly. Um, my kids had like, they were friends with a family. The siblings were all around the same age and they come home one day. They're like, the parents are getting divorced. I don't understand. They never fought. We never saw it. The children are in shock. I was like, children, let me explain something to you. <laughs> and I really, I, I explained exactly what we're talking about because it's important to know. Um, how, so, old are your, how old is your oldest child? 22. Do you feel like, well, God, they're an adult now. I mean, well, my youngest is eight. So okay. there's a big range. Yeah. You were mentioning before about fighting styles or how many, I mean, there must be a few, I can think of like, it's so funny. I'm currently reading a book called what makes a marriage last by Marla Thomas and Phil Donahue. And she asks them like, what do you guys fight about? And you see like all of these people have really different things that they fight about and also really different styles. And I'm wondering, like, I've never even thought like, oh, there's probably labels for this, which I guess you're going to maybe tell me now what those are. But it also makes me realize as I'm reading this, like, oh, my husband, and I have a very specific fighting style. So tell me more, you know, more about this, it seems like than I do. So I want to learn more about the vocabulary here. Well, there are, you know, most, the, the two, obviously, right, that are most obvious. And it's usually, um, you know, women tend to, uh, and not all, of course, I don't like to make generalizations, but they um, tend to be more of an escalator in an argument because we're more, when we get really upset or angry, we need to talk about it. It's just how we communicate. And the, and the more we talk about it, the calmer we feel. Whereas men in that experience, usually that makes their heart rate jump up and they start to get nervous. The more our voices get loud, the more their heart rate goes. So what happens is they'll put the TV on and then we get really enraged because I'm trying to talk to you. Why are you ignoring me? But that need to shut down is actually what calms them in a moment. I didn't understand anything, any of this when we were first married. I also come from a Middle Eastern family where the fighting was always escalating for both my parents. There's a lot of screaming, a lot of yelling. Um, so I just thought that that's how you fight. How, how did your parents fight? What did your yeah. parents fight about? How did your parents fight? They fought a lot about everything. My father had a lot of money. He was a self-made millionaire when we lived in the South. We, I was born in Thibodeau, Louisiana. And then he lost everything. And uh, right when we moved to Beverly Hills and so money, they fought about a lot. And my mom worked for the first time in her family business and he wasn't working for a while. So there was just a lot of different things going on. Financial stress. A lot of stress and a lot of out external family stress from, from now being with their parents all the time and the in-laws and you know, all the things that I now understand should, you know, people should never do. They, they just did it all wrong, really, quite honestly, with their relationship. And they loved each other, but it was just, you know, a lot of pain. How what? did that influence you? Like in terms of when you were looking for a partner? Very um, much so. Well, it's funny. It's not funny, but it's interesting. My father had Alzheimer's for eight yeah. years and he just passed last month. I'm so sorry. Thank you. And I had a lot of different epiphanies, you know, that one does have once, uh, somebody leaves the world, it's kind of like the blinders that were up, even if you've worked really hard to kind of remove them, 
they kind of come down um, when the soul leaves. I found anyway, in my experience, but I knew already when I was younger, I didn't want to have that inequality, I think, in the relationship. Like once my mom was working, she was still coming home and cooking and cleaning and washing dishes. And it was just all on her. And um, so I decided that I wasn't, that definitely wasn't going to be the dynamic in my marriage. And also I didn't want to marry somebody who was really hot headed and like Middle Eastern. I wanted a very thoughtful, spiritual relationship. So it became clear that 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 I would never tolerate. And I really chose a man that um, is, is exactly as I've described. Same. Just described like the family dynamic in my house too. Really? And that was, that was, I don't know if you had this experience. I don't know what your dating history was before you met your husband, but like, I remember in the beginning of, you know, like in my early twenties, when I was dating, I was dating men who were not, they were not like my father, but they fought like my father. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I don't, I don't, I don't like the way both my parents fight. I think they're both avoided. So they like, we're just not going to talk about it. Like they fight, but they don't resolve. Yeah. They just scream, scream, scream. And then there's a food offering or a coffee offering like 30 minutes later. And then that's the end of the fight. And that affected both myself and my sister of like how we would choose partners. And I know in the beginning, I don't know about my sister, but I know in the beginning for me, like I would choose people like my dad. And it was only until things got really bad, like for me emotion that I was like, no, like I'm repeating my mom's mistakes. And I can't, I cannot be with someone who a doesn't see equity in the home as 50, 50. That's just, just like you and B they cannot be hotheaded. They should be interested in having conversation, finding a compromise, talking about like, you know, exhausting the conversation to get to a resolution, not a food offering or a coffee and, you know, a coffee offering. Um, I don't know if you guys had that too. Cause I mean, I grew up in a Greek family, so I know that there's a lot of similar cultural, cultural stuff here. Right. Offering was always like, you know, it's yeah. The, after, after, the, after the meal, it would be like, they just like swallow it up and choke it yeah. up. Like for me. And in fact, I developed an eating disorder around that time, uh, 18. So even though I had started, I had found Kabbalah, um, there was so much turmoil in my home. I was trying to make sense of it all. Um, and I was, you know, we're three sisters, middle child. So I was the fixer. And I just, one day I was like, I just, uh, you know, I remember I, I, we went back to New Orleans for the first time since my father had lost everything. It was kind of like, this is what our life would have looked like had we stayed. It was just too much with all the chaos we were living in, in Beverly Hills. And then to go back to that reality where it was like, I had such a happy childhood. And I remember sitting at the table after five days of this family trip, which was like up and down and fighting. And I was like, I never need to eat again. Yeah, that's what I'll do. It was like this thought that just came in. And um, wow. So I didn't really have a choice to not fix this stuff early because I wouldn't have lived. You know, I, right. I really, and I do write about that in the book. The first eight chapters are really about the relationship you have with yourself because if you don't go back and think about the things like you did with your parents and say, okay, this is what felt right in the home. This is what didn't feel right. This is what I want. This is what I don't want. This is what I deserve. This is what I don't deserve. And really go through that and, and learn to love yourself and be kind to yourself in a way that maybe you didn't have that model. Um, then it's very difficult, I think, to get your life going the way you want to and to make good choices that will really last. You know, I appreciate your vulnerability. You shared about your father passing. Do you mm -hmm. feel like that's the last month has been 
you know, even like an increased reflection of, you know, your family dynamic? Well, this is what's interesting. The two things that I really understood a little bit differently or had a fuller understanding of were that, you know, I, I had given myself so much credit that like, as we're saying right now, you know, I really, I saw what didn't work and I, I chose really well because I I did the opposite of what I saw in the home. Right. I I looked at that mom and said, it's not working. But what I realized is that actually I was able to find a man that was capable of really loving me unconditionally. And that truly is a healthy person that loves himself the same because my father always loved me unconditionally. Now, yeah, did he have flaws a thousand percent, but because I knew what unconditional love felt like from him, I knew not to settle for anything less than that. And that was a profound understanding I had only after he passed away. So I was really, really, it was like a, like hit me in the face. Like, wait, I, I can't, that's really why I was able to choose this. Um, the second thing I understood, and I, I really, I really got this when he was in hospice care the last two weeks was that he he wasn't, he was a really kind person. Like, I think I would have described him as an angry person my whole life, but he just didn't have the tools to be able to control his emotions. He was so emotional. He was so kind. He was so loving that he just couldn't handle any stress or pressure. And so, yeah, nobody's perfect, but I, I, it redefined and reshaped how I would have defined him my whole life. And that was really, um, that was really beautiful and really healing, you know, because I didn't judge him. But I just thought, you know, it's a shame that he was so angry, but I, I just saw it as like, wow, he really struggled with that. And it's not who he was. It's just how he responded to stress. And there was a lot of it. I'm thinking as you're speaking, like, you know, I think I would describe my father the same way, like how sometimes he seems like angry, although he's so everyone around him likes him. He's very kind, but you know, if you, if you get him at the wrong way and then at the same time, like, you know, no, you don't know me personally, Monica, but like my mom has been really sick and she's, uh, she's been in the hospital and in and out and all that stuff. And, and it's been a lot of reflection on my end too, of like who my parents are, not only, not only as my parents, like how they raised us and you know what they did. And I think they did a great job by the way. I think, you know, I think they were really good parents, but even just the relationship with each other, you know, like I said before, like how that influences who you choose later. And I think my parents see that my sister and I chose very differently Mm-hmm. Um, as adults, and I think they are proud of us in that sense. But to go back to the original question, <laughs> well, what are I was fighting thinking. styles? So, um, so yeah, so so when we first got married, again, that was the dynamic, and it just was not working. So about mm-hmm. four years into the marriage, we sat down and we said, okay, you know, what really is the goal of of the argument, right? It, because a lot of people just go in it with the desire to win, right, or um, to get an apology or whatever it is. For us, it was really to be heard and to be seen. It doesn't mean we have to agree on it, but just to be heard. So if that's the goal, then what is a style we're both comfortable with? So understanding that he might need a little bit longer to process it, then I realized that I can give him, let's agree on a time, 30 minutes or whatever, to calm down or whatever it is, and that we'll come back and we'll sit and talk about it. And I do have in the book that there's 10 baseline rules for effective fighting. So I can go through those 10 if you want. I would love for you to go through um, those 10. Because I don't think it's so much in labeling. I feel like, you know, you're going to have people that have a hotter temper or not. It's each person has to manage themselves first and foremost. And then again, come together and say, okay, how do we want to actually have these, um, 
important constructive conversations, right? There can be some yelling, but as long as it's not coming from this place of, you know, like sometimes I know that I've raised my voice, my kids, but I'm really smiling on the inside. I need to raise my voice in that moment for them to take me seriously. But there's a difference when you yell at your kid because you are now like at your wits end versus, you know, they need to actually be a little bit scared so that they're going to hear you. Discipline, yeah. Right. Um, so the first is, discuss lines that you should never, ever cross, which is no hitting below the belt. I can't tell you how many times couples do that. And that kind of goes like this, like you're acting like your mother and I hate your mother, right? That, that kind is of thing. below the line. Um, so, and we know when we go to those places, but once you say those things, they can never be taken back. It's kind of like if you break a, a glass, yes, you can glue it back together, but it's never going to quite fit the same way. So if over and over again, you say things that are hurtful and undermining, and again, below the belt, you can't really recover from that. So that's the first one. The second is agree on the fighting style that works for both of you. Again, whether you choose to vent or you sit and discuss calmly, it just has to accommodate both of your needs. The third is identify in advance what an acceptable outcome looks like. You know, and again, it might be that we won't agree on this, but I just want you to hear me and let's talk about it again in three days. Or, um, you know, I just want you to know that this was really important to me. So now you know me more emotionally, intelligently for the next argument we have, right? So decide where you want to go with it. Four is assign the time of day to hear each other because a lot of people decide to have these conversations in the bedroom. Never, ever, ever fight in the bedroom, ever. Do not bring that into bed. Do not withhold sex from one another. And okay. also don't do it when you're exhausted, don't have these conversations. So, um, or stressed and the kids are running around or you, you have to give them a bath or whatever it is. Pick a time of day, maybe like at eight or you have a glass of wine together, just like that it will be the best environment to talk about these real issues. That's a hard one. Because I think sometimes fights happen so- Very reactively. Yeah. And that's the mistake. Yeah, you're right. That's, You'll uh, feel those things, right? In the moment. And you can even yeah. say like, my husband and I do this now. I'll look at him. I and mean, when we've been married, so like, we'll just look at each other and he knows we're going to have a conversation about it later. Or I know he wants the same, but we know that like, it's not appropriate. The kids are different ages. They understand what's going on. And also you don't want to have anybody feel uncomfortable and it, it's private, right? So we'll definitely find a moment or we'll, we'll leave the room for 20 minutes. Or, you know, it's, yeah. it's very doable. Once you actually put these out and lay them down, they become just second nature. And then it's just, it's automatic. But at first you're going to need to be strategic. When things get heated in our home, we have a safe phrase. It's stupid. It's like, it's as simple as this, which is actually comes from a porno. Uh, <laughs> it comes from like this, like funny clip. It's like the intro to some porno from like Cyprus. I don't know. We we found it. We, we thought it was really funny. Like the first, it was like a funny clip that they had shown on like TV or something, like the first five minutes. And we thought it was so funny that we just use it now. So if something's like trying to make a point, it's like, okay, simple as this. And that's like, pause. We we'll talk about this later. Like you, we both need to calm down. So if, if any of us throws that phrase out, pause. it's the, it's the pause. It's like, you can't, and you can't be like, no, we're going to keep going. No, no. Like we, that's our safe word. Like we have to, our safe phrase for fighting. It's smart. It's funny that you say that because there's actually one of the tools of Kabbalah is um, the reactive formula. And one of the steps is pause and then like, what a pleasure. So even in the chaotic, like even in this, right, pause. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a great opportunity for something, right? In this case with the couple, it's a great opportunity to get closer, right? Because really every argument should make you be more vulnerable, closer to one another, knowing each other one, even more than you had before. There is a purpose in it. There can be. So. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's really great. 
So five, avoid overreacting. You want to remain open enough to see your partner's point of view. Now, you might not like what they have to say, but again, this is the pause part. You just come in and say, all right, um, I'm not sure I agree with you, but I'm going to think about it. And then you can come back and say why it's hitting you the wrong way, because usually it's going to be attached to some kind of fear. Does that mean I can't have an opinion? Does that mean I have to agree with you? Does that mean I have to change, right? If you can identify why you're resistant, then you can come back and say, okay, I heard you, but now this is what I think about it. I mean, everything is a conversation. Everything can be discussed. I think it's interesting when especially married couples are so afraid to say what they feel because they don't want to create discord in the marriage. I'm like, but this is discord. The more you hold your tongue and you don't say what you need to say, the farther and farther you're going to become from one another. And that's the last thing that you actually want. Right, right. Six, discuss one issue at a time and be specific. Don't use it as an opportunity to rehash every argument you've ever had. What happened last week? What happened five years ago? And again, this is why when I said earlier, couples at seven years, it's really dangerous because now you're bringing up like every fight from five years ago and because it's going to be a theme and a pattern. And that's the importance of speaking also, but really stick to one thing. And I know that like, I've done this, like if I'm really, it's not even about my husband, but if I'm like in a space where like, I see just black, it's like, I'm like, he's like, okay, this is not part of this conversation. Like, I'll just see like, it's like a whirlwind of things. Right. So it's important to be able to, to, to do that. Seven, avoid words like always and never, because that's not accurate either. That's an emotional response to something that's happening. You always do this. You never pick up that. It's like, just really catch yourself. Exactly. I mean, I hate always and never, even just in dating. When people say I would never date someone who's bald, I would never do this. I always go on vacation here. It's like, okay, well, relax. I'm with you. I I don't like anything that's limiting, by the way, in general. Eight, don't interrupt, take turns speaking. Listen with the desire to really hear your partner, not with the desire to respond, right? Yeah. Very often I feel like people are quiet and all they're thinking about is like, okay, this is what I'm going to say next. That's, you know, I'm just going to respond. No, really listen actively. Right. Nine, be willing to compromise. This one I like because it's not sacrifice. I think people get that confused. Like sacrifice is that you have to deny what you want to be able to make your partner happy. You have to give up something you really believe in and no sacrifice is ever worth it. You'll see it's, it's always that you bite off more than you can chew. Compromise is if something is more important to either person in that moment, right? Let that person have the win type of thing. So for instance, if sports or activities for my kids is really important, but not so much for my husband. And I asked him to, even though I agreed that I would take them because I thought this was really important, like a ballet class, let's say. And he didn't find the value in it. And then one day I couldn't take them. You know, that could be a fight. You promised you were going to do it. I don't think it's important. Why are they even going? That's not going to go really well. Or you could say, okay, I know this isn't really, it's not important to me, but I see how important it is to you. I'll do it. Right. This is definitely something my parents thought about. Like, I'll never forget. My mom went on a business trip one week and my dad, he only took us to Greek school. Like that was, and maybe soccer practice. He didn't take us to ballet. He didn't take us to Girl Scouts. It was like, Isn't that so interesting. I feel like I've tapped into your family dynamic for some reason. <laughs> I love that it fits so perfectly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, I, I didn't even think about that, but I was, it's like a good, and it's a joke that we have in our family because of, uh, you know, my mom was like, my mom would, you know, try not to go on business trips after that, which I thought was, I don't think that's a good thing either. You know what I mean? Like that's a limiting career wise. 
No, I don't think it's great because she had to sacrifice, you see, because right. her father wouldn't compromise. And the issue is that that's mm -hmm. not really fair. And if he had done those things, just think about this. If he had stepped up above and beyond and did things that he didn't think were important, do you know how happy that would have made her? Do you know how close she would have felt to him? You know what that would have done to the relationship? You know, I always say to people, it's not the great grand gestures that you make for one another. It's those small things that, you know, you didn't ask anybody to, to do the dishes that night and they did it because they knew you were really tired or, um, you know, it's, it's those little thoughtful, kind ways that. I mean, look in my father's defense, because my mom was running around with us every afternoon, he did cook dinner the entirety of my childhood. My mom only did the meals on the weekends, but you know, like I just remember those, those weeks where it's like, oh, mom's gone. Yeah. We're only doing soccer practice on <laughs> and Greek school, no ballet, no tap dance, no girl scouts. I mean, God, we were overscheduled too. Cause you know, product of the nineties, what are you going to do? Right. Right. That's funny. Are we and the last nine? one we're on number, number 10. 10 and that a successful fight means you both walk away feeling heard and understood. It's not about winning. And the petty fights are never really about what they are. They're about really something much larger. And it's usually that, that a person doesn't speak, they don't feel valued. So they're finding all these little things to say, notice me, hear me, see me, keep your eye on what, what's really happening here. Just try to see the want and the desire behind the emotions. Because we tend to take the emotions so seriously. You know, the person's angry, they're yelling, they're hurt. But what is it really telling you? Why are they feeling those things? What is it that they ultimately want? What was the last thing you and your husband thought about? You know, it's interesting. I don't really remember our fights. I remember how we repaired, which I think is right. It's more powerful because actually I walked away feeling heard and valued and he did too. And so, you know, if I had to pick a theme, it's usually about uh, other people, like how we should help them or, you know, we work together. So it's not usually, it's about bigger ideas, world things, which is nice because there's growth in that. And, and those should be things that we actually fight about. Right. I don't fight a lot with my, we, we talk a lot. So like the things that could become fights, they're talked to exhaustion. We did have a blowout, a blowout. It was just me screaming and slamming a door. That's the, that's the definition of blowout in my house. Um, this weekend, because I got really upset that he messed with the washing machine <laughs> and you know, he's like, so one time I didn't check the washing machine settings. One time, two years ago, I did not check the washing machine settings and his, I, I was cleaning his clothes and his polo shrunk. Ever since then, two years ago, anytime I do laundry, he's always like, well, just make sure the clothes don't shrink. Oh my God, for two and years? For two years. And I've always kind of like, not always, he doesn't always say, but he says it at least once a month. I'm always like, yeah, I'm making sure, you know, like whatever. And that's like the only thing he's ever kind of like kept tabs on, whatever, because we have to buy new clothes. <laughs> And he did a load last week and he tinkered with it. And I have like my standard settings and no one did to tinker with it. The knob came off. So I didn't think to check the settings. I was like, okay, clothes go in, let's put it on. And then at the end I had come in and I was just like, something was on my hand, like soap was on my hand. So I put it under to like wash the soap off. And I was like, why is this water hot? What did you do? And I just like, I started, and he was like, I don't understand what the big deal is. And I go, the big deal is that every time I do laundry, ah. you say, don't shrink the clothes. And I make sure that I don't shrink the clothes. So I have this guilt doing this every single week. And, and here you are sabotaging me. 
like just kind of freaking out. And, you know, and then I slammed the door and I left and I was like, we have to resolve this. Like, you know, we, we, we called in a uh, simple as this safe phrase, whatever. Right. And his, to him, for him to resolve it, he bought a new knob and he was like, I'm sorry for messing with it. I bought a new knob to replace it so that that doesn't happen again. And I was like, yeah, okay. Like, thanks. You know, and I'm sorry for like really overreacting, <laughs> but just so you know, you do this every week for two years. Like that happened two years ago. And that really hurts my feelings every time you do it. And I never even realized that it hurt my feelings until. Exactly. Like I had no idea it was hurting my feelings until I saw red. So now he won't say it anymore. Hopefully he'll never say it again. Like he, he told me, it's like, I will never say that again, you know, whatever. And, and somehow I saved the clothes. So the clothes did not shrink this time. But that's really powerful, right? Because that is an important argument to have. It wasn't about this one thing. It was about a feeling, right? Something much bigger and that you weren't even aware. And it was just bothering you a little bit every, every month for two years. Right. So yeah, yeah that's a great example. It's a good, it's a really important thing to argue about. I, but like, luckily, you know, I don't know, my husband and I were, were pretty good. I, I do, I will say, I know I mentioned this in a previous episode and I'd loved your, I'd love to hear your take on this, but like, I think when people ask me what the most challenging part of now, granted my husband, and I, we've been, been married for five years. So not the same as 24. Um, we've been together for nine, but I think one of the hardest things about having a kid with your spouse, at least for me, is the loss of identity. Like as a hot wife, as the hot girlfriend, like suddenly I'm the mom mm. and he's the dad. And by experiencing that loss of identity, I could understand when people say stuff like, you know, my friend's or even clients would say, you know, when we fight, I feel really resentful. And I would want, and then when that, when I had that experience of like the loss of identity, I thought, I wonder if resentment can come from the fact that when you go out and meet new people, they don't know you as the mom, they know you as sexy Monica or cutie Monica. I don't know. I'm not trying to like objectify you. Um, like, or like they know me as like, you know, they might know you as fun Monica and giving Monica, like they have a different title for you. It's not mommy Monica. And which is very limiting. It's a closed box. Well, I find this really interesting because I don't believe in labels of any kind, period, full stop. And by not assigning yourself to be one thing or five things, you can be so, so many things. And I'm, I call myself a change junkie. I want to be different tomorrow than the person you've met today. Even to okay. the point where you're like, wow, I didn't, you're so different. That's, that's my goal. And that's how I live. So I think it's really cool when I just want to be a force of change in the world. So when people discover things about me, like, oh, you're a mom, I didn't know, or, oh, you're oldest 22. I, I want to, because I don't ever want to be something. You see what I'm saying? So I never identify as anything other than really a person with the intention of change and growth for myself and for the world. And by that, I don't really feel attached to anything. So there's no limitation. There's no limited thinking. Um, and by the way, the way I view being a mom is like, I feel like they keep me young because they're always teaching me and showing me new ways to view things that are fun and exciting. But see, I think yeah. this is where, I think this is what I mean. Like, like, listen, I, I love being a mom, so don't get me wrong here at all. But right. what I mean by like loss of identity, I don't mean for myself. I know exactly who I am. I'm saying like, you know, my spat, my husband, 
um, sees me for who I am at that, you know, at that moment, at that day. Right. And the first year of having a kid, the first kid, especially where there's like a massive learning curve there, I felt like there were more fights or more misunderstandings or more miscommunication where we really had to, we had to put more work in. Cause you're exhausted by the way. Oh yeah. It's all exhaustion. I'll never forget. One of my girlfriends said, and it's such a good life hack. She's like, before you go to bed, agree on who's going to wake up next. Oh, so we that do that way. every night. Are you kidding? Oh yeah. We still do that. Cause we have a one-year-old, but like, I think, you, you, you know, we have a routine and, and that's helped a lot and we're, you know, we're better than ever. But what I noticed was like in the first year when we were fighting a lot, fighting a lot, we weren't fighting. We were just sleep deprived adults <laughs> trying to keep a kid alive, but it was really tough. And that loss of identity, like what it means to me, what it means is like, I would meet new people and they could give me that ego boost of like, oh, you're so much fun. Or wow, look at all the changes you're doing. Oh, you're doing this. That's amazing. Oh my God, you're a super mom too. That's awesome. Like, and it's like, oh, wow. Like this is a lot of acknowledgement from someone who does not have to live with me every day. That's amazing. Like that made me feel good. And it's like at home, it's like, okay, who's going to feed the kid now? Or who's going to change? Like it was just, and I think we both had to snap out of it where it's like, we have to date each other. Yes. We have to, we have to like put some effort here. Like I think sometimes And this is one of the reasons why a lot of divorces happen within the first two years of having your first kid is learning how to not just be parents, but be partners. A thousand percent. When our second child was born and he was born with Down syndrome, we didn't know until a few hours after he was born. And so we went through, as you can imagine, array of emotions and just a lot. And I think when he was like three months old, we just felt so heavy at that point. And I was like, you know, we need to have fun. We need to go back and like, just have fun together. So we took tennis lessons and we took salsa Mm. lessons and I'm naturally a better dancer. So he ended up dancing with our male teacher and I was laughing and we just, we were giddy. You know, we had so much fun together until we were exhausted from all the things we were doing every week. Cause we had like date night every night that, um, but it did bring back a certain uh, spice to the relationship that even though we were exhausted and it was very stressful. And then I got pregnant three months later with a third child, three months after Josh was born. I did that intentionally because I thought I would be too scared to ever try again after the trauma I had felt then. And at that point I had already decided and knew that Josh was a blessing and that I could handle it. But those first three months were anxiety ridden and then to go straight into another pregnancy. So for us, it really kind of reshaped our entire relationship where we saw each other in a different way. We appreciated each other in a way we never were capable of before. And it created a vulnerability that we also had never had. There are things, you know, four years into our marriage that I still had never told him, you know, or that I wouldn't think to tell him. And that kind of shifted everything. So I think to your point, I think it's really important that parents don't, especially parents, or it could be anything, right? Any outside stressor or trigger, um, even things that make us happy, don't allow that to stop you from this most important thing, right? Because you'll be able to weather everything much better when you put yourself, you guys take that time to really um, be friends, to date, to have fun, um, to take a break from whatever title we have, because we, we do, we, you know, we, we become very serious adults and yes. uh, you can get lost in that. Well, this was really great, Monica. I feel like it was therapy hour for me as well. And uh, I appreciate that. Hey, I listen to everyone's problems all day. <laughs> it's good to like self-reflect when a, a, a knowledgeable guest comes on. And I really appreciate you coming to ask a matchmaker. I really enjoyed our talk 
as well. And thank you for having me. I want everyone to go and follow Monica Berg on Instagram. She's Monica Berg 74. I'll have the link in the episode notes. Also go buy her books. I'll have links to her books as well in the episode notes. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you listeners for listening to Ask a Matchmaker each week. I feel so grateful to receive your questions and provide answers. And if you enjoyed today's episode and you want to listen to more episodes, follow Ask a Matchmaker podcast and you'll get all of this great dating and relationship content dropped into your podcast app each Wednesday. Don't forget to rate and review. If you have a dating or relationship question, visit askamatchmaker.com to submit your 60 second audio question or written question. I'll take both. You can also follow me on Instagram at matchmakermarie for more dating and relationship tips. Until then, be lovable and more importantly, be likable. See you next week.